Welcome to Bible Fellowship Church. Uh, we're not perfect, uh, but we love our God, and we want to we show that love to other people. So thank you for being the church. Um, we're about to get into God's Word today. Uh, anyone remember where we are? Nahum, Nahum not Micah. Um, Nahum. And we're, we're going to be at kind of the end of chapter 1 and then all of chapter 2. Um, and I, I just simply want us to see, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to tackle a passage that deals with such destruction. Um, but I want us, want us to see how just our God is and how much he will do what he said he will do. Uh, oftentimes I think we can, we can forget the reality that God finishes what he starts, what he says will come to pass. And more so what we see in Nahum is a dis- accurate description, a prophecy of the fall of Nineveh that trails along or follows along exactly what happens in world history. Um, and it was something that was done because it, it was needed to be done. Uh, justice is needed. All of us yearn for it. Uh, all of us have a s- distorted view of what justice would be, right? Justice is anyone being punished, punished who hurts me, um, rather than what true justice is. Righteousness, holiness, God holding the standard of what is good, what is truly good, and making that uh, uh, preserved, keeping goodness, uh, avenging wrongdoing. And so we've been reading through Nahum, and we started, I mean, the, the book of Nahum starts out with this, this, these statements that uh, for some come across as, as almost like, why would I want to follow this God? God is judging and avengeful. God is full of wrath, uh, an avenging God. Uh, God. Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. But it says the Lord is slow to anger. He's great in power. We've oftentimes, or at least in the last year, many times have re- referred ourselves back to the way in which God wants to be known in the world. We've, we find that in Exodus, when the first time he says and describes himself, himself, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, rich in faithfulness, forgiving the iniquity of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Right, so he's merciful, he's kind, but he is just. He will make things right. He will take the wrong of this world and he will make it right. And he does that progressively through history. He will do that finally in the end. But as we're seeing with Nahum, Nahum is, is, is calling out and describing the reality of the coming justice of God on the wicked nation of Assyria and their capital city of Nineveh. Now, I, last week, the week before, talked about the uh, wickedness of the people of Nineveh. Um, this week, I'm going to read some original sources of what they used to do and to kind of give us a picture of, of what this culture was like. 
Um, and the reason why it's good that God executed justice on this nation. Um, but before we do that, I'm going to read starting verse 15 of chapter 1. Uh, Behold, upon the mountains, a feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened up. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish in all is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where, the, where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lions tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness, lionesses. He filled his caves with prey, his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. The voice of the messengers shall no longer be heard. That's an intense passage. But there's a lot of destruction going on there. And this is not coming, like, we, like a couple weeks ago, I talked about God's justice and his uh, his vengeance, it's not like the way that we experience it or feel it ourselves. He's not moved with emotion. He's fully calculated. He's following the time that is set that is right. He's also utilizing the wickedness of this world to work out his plan in the world. Right? Remember, Assyria came in as a rod of discipline, Isaiah says, against Israel. Because Israel was doing horrendous things themselves, sacrificing their children for the potential of having a good crop. You know how crazy that is? That's just absolutely wicked. And so they come in, and then, and then they go, and they're thinking, we're good. We're the world power. No one can stop us. We do what we want, when we want, and people pay us. We are secure, and we're fine. I mean, Assyria is just terrible. I mean, the atrocities that they have perpetuated, we don't even have a category in our mind for how wicked they are. Like, listen, listen to this. This is, this is um, from the annuals of, and this is a great name, 
Ashurnasbaral II. Uh, people had a more delicate tongue back then. Um, but, but listen what he put in his annuals. Um, the, he, he, he wrote this into stone. I built a pillar over the, against this, his city gate, and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. And some I walled up within the pillar, and some upon the pillar on stakes I impaled, and others I fixed to stakes around about the pillar. Many within the border of my own land I flayed, and I spread their skins upon the walls, and I cut off the limbs of the high officers and of the high royal officers who had rebelled. Many captives from among them I burned with fire, and many I captured alive. For some I cut off their hands and their fingers, and from others I cut off their noses and their ears. And the eyes of many men I put out. I made one heap of the living, another of, of the heads, and I bound their heads to vines around the city. The young men and maidens I burned with fire. Like This is one of their kings who's bragging about his brutality. This is how much power I have over men. I think you listen to that and you just kind of recoil at it. Like, how could someone do something like that? Like, there's another king who says this. He says, I suspended their corpses from poles, tore their skin off and affixed it to the city walls. I let dogs, swine, wolves, vert, vultures, birds of the heavens, and the sweetwater fish devour their cut-off limbs. The people who lived in the city had not come out and had not acknowledged my rule, I slew. Chopped off their heads, cut off their lips. I bored through his jaw with my cutting dagger, pulled a rope through his cheek and the sides of his face, and attached a dog chain to him, and let him guard the cage at the east gates of Nineveh. Right? And, and this is not the worst things that they've done. I mean, last week I said, there's, there's stuff I just don't, I'm not going to read here. It's just too brutal. And just to give a picture of how wicked these people are, this is written kind of right before Jonah. So it kind of helps you understand why Jonah's like, God's like, hey, go preach to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, no, no, thank you. I'm, I'm going to go over here. I don't want to do that. And then when he goes and he, and he preaches to Nineveh and Nineveh, the city repents and he's sitting there, he's wallowing in his, in his uh, depression. How could you have mercy on these people? Right? Yeah, we understand that it's because Jonah didn't really understand what mercy was. Jonah didn't understand that he had had received mercy. Other people should receive mercy. There are people in that city who don't know their left hand from their right hand. They're growing up in a wicked society, have no idea what's going on. They're enslaved to sin. They're dead, blind, dumb. It's, they, they need help. They need mercy. Right? But at the same time, they're wicked. I mean, some of these skins may have been on the wall when he was walking up there. absolute abuse of humankind which we have the blessing of growing up in a nation where we have such a moral uh, such morals that where we would think that's horrible but this time they're saying that's how you rule the world and it was effective i mean they were in power they were wealthy. 
So much so that we, we don't even know how much wealth they had. In Nahum's preaching to them, this wicked society is going to come crumbling down almost at the height of their power. So when, he, when he's telling, behold, the feet on the mountains, keep your feast, Israel, fulfill your vows, this is like 30 to 40 years before the fall of Nineveh. He's, he's speaking into the future of something that is not yet going to happen. It's really going to happen, but they're still living under this oppressive rule. And this kingdom has no concept that there's anyone who could ever destroy me. Right? Their inner city wall, eight miles in circumference, thick enough to ride three chariots alongside of each other on the top of it. They, they, had, they had surrounded with a moat around it. They had a river coming through and protecting and feeding the town. So even if they were besieged, they had water. They had food. Nobody could touch me. Apart from that, there's just this massive, wide sprawl of a city that goes around. These guys are secure, or as secure as you could be in the ancient Near East. But God says, no. I will deal with this. Because he is a God of love. It is unloving for a God of love to not deal with wickedness perpetuated and perpetuated and perpetuated. It is his kindness that he delays in doing so. It's his mercy that he does not pay us what we owe. But there is a day, there will be a day, and there was a day for Nineveh that enough was enough. And it had to be done. So God will do what he said he will do. And he fulfilled exactly what he stated in this chapter of Nahum. Right? And it wasn't just Nahum that he had said these things through. He said it through Isaiah, right? Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hand is my fury. When the Lord has finished all the work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. I'll, I'll, I'll utilize it in my plan, but I will finish it. This, this will come. And we have some ancient sources, somewhere around 20 AD, that gives a pretty clear, consistent picture of what Nineveh says here, of the destruction of Nineveh. Uh, there's a historian called uh, Diodorus Siculus. Siculus, that's a cool name. He says this. Um, in the sixth year of 612 B.C., um, the combined armies of the Babylonians and Scythians marched up the left bank of the Tigris River and surrounded the city. It happened in early spring at the time of the annual rainfalls. 
And since rains were especially hard that year, the Tigris and the rivers flooded and apparently washed away a portion of the walls, leaving a breach for the armies to enter the city. And this is what the, what the historian said. He says, the river not only broke down the walls of the city, it also inundated part of it. At this point, the king, Serendopolis, remembering an or oracle to the effect that Nineveh would only fall when the river itself declared a war against it, built a gigantic funeral pyre in the royal precincts, heaped up large quantities of gold and costly clothes and shut his concubines and eunuchs in a chamber he had made in the midst of the pyre and then burned himself, his family, his concubines and eunuchs in the palace. Whatever had not been burned in this conflagration was destroyed by the enter in entering armies. There was a terrible slaughter. Uh, so great was the multitude of the slain that the flowing stream mingled with their blood changed its color for a considerable distance. There was unparalleled looting. For centuries, the wealth of the ancient world had been pouring into Nineveh as a result of the Assyrian conquests and now poured out. Now he, he uses a phrase that he only uses in this, this thing. He says, the plundered of the spoil of the city, a quantity beyond counting. And just, just for reference, here, here are some things we have from the Assyrians written down on some of the spoil that they've, that they've brought in. So Salamancer II, um, he says, he got the tribute of Sua, he got silver, gold, lead, copper vessels, staves for the hand of the king, horses, camels. From the tribute of Laius, uh, son of Omri, from Jehu, Silver, gold, a golden bowl, a golden breaker, breaker, golden goblets, pitcher of gold, lead, and it continues, unreadable. Tribute of, um, of the Hittites, silver, gold, lead, copper vessels, ivory, cypress. Another slab from another king, 22,000 talents of silver, 20 talents of gold, 3,000 talents of copper, 5,000 talents of iron, colored woolen, and linen gar garments, an ivory bed, an ivory couch. Sargon, he lists, um, uh, his, he got a golden, uh, I can't even pronounce that word, uh, a, gold, a, his royal, a royal golden throne, a golden scepter, scepter, a golden couch, golden footstool, and his weapons. Um, he carried off a ton of spoil. Now, just to put that into perspective, one of those statements there talked about talents that were taken. A talent is about 75 pounds. 2,000 talents of silver. So if, if one, 75 pounds of silver, and I don't know what the conversion rate is, but when I was looking this up, or when I was reading about this, and these are conversion rates from a while ago, one talent was like $15,000 of silver. So you're, you're talking um, somewhere around like $30 million in silver. 20 talents of gold, one talent of gold is like 1.25 million. So like $25 million worth of just gold. And this is just one cash that they're bringing in. Just imagine the wealth. Just imagine what's going on there. And this ancient historian who's talking about all this stuff flooding away and the way in which it happened, the river coming and breaking down, the army surrounding, they're coming in and they're, they're, they're just destroying. And what does Nahum say? 
The scatterer has come upon you. You who scattered my people, he's coming upon you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle. It's not going to do any good. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. Destruction. Soldiers are clothed in scarlet. Destruction. Chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Literally happened. The only way into the city was through that, that river gates. It broke open. The palace melts away. It burned. It melted. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. All the wealth that they've carried up for themselves, they've piled up in a pool like water. It's just, there's a hole in it, and it's flooding out. And you can't do anything about it. You can't get the water back. It's just gone. And this actually happened. God said he would do it. He did it. God's word is extremely accurate. I mean, this is just one account in the Bible where his... People argue over whether or not Nahum wrote this after the fact because it is way too close to the reality of what happened. But he wrote it in the time of Manasseh. He wrote it before this happened. God gave him a prophecy of what would happen and then it came to pass. And there are thousands of prophecies in the Bible. It's hard to even count, but somewhere between like 2,000 to 2,500 and around 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled. We can, we can talk about like things that we know, right? Noah, I'm going to flood the earth with what? Rain. What is rain? It never rained on the face of the earth. And then what did he do? He flooded the earth. Abraham, hey, buddy, um, I'm going to give you a son. I know you're 100 years old, and I know your wife is about 90. She's going to have a son next year. What happened? She had a son. Rebecca, I know you got a little indigestion in there. It's actually two different nations fighting each other. They're going to do that forever. What happened? They're still fighting each other. Over and over and over again, God's word proves to be true. Even more miraculously in the birth of the son, Jesus. Estimated somewhere around the 350 
specific prophecies fulfilled in his life and ministry. Given way before he showed up on the scene. We could just spend a whole lot of time just going over and over and over the veracity of God's word, how true it is, how much we can rely on it. Because it just proves itself over and over and over again. God does what he says. I mean, we don't even have to go far. The beginning of the book, let there be light and there was light. Separate the darkness from the light, and it was there is day, there is night. Let there be animals. Let us make man in our image. And the entire beginning of the book is showcasing when God says something, it comes to pass. It's reliable. He does what he says. He proves it over and over again. And for the Israelites under the oppressive regime of Assyria, he was saying, take courage. Your God is coming. It may be a little while, but as sure as that is there, it is happening. So trust him, rely on him, keep the faith. I don't know where all of you guys are in your walk, your spiritual walk. I don't know if you've been walking with the Lord forever or you don't know him at all. But the reality is that God has said that like Assyria, he's going to execute his justice on this world. This world is way more wicked than we could ever understand. There are things happening and things have happened and things will happen that our minds cannot comprehend. Our own hearts are desperately sick and in need of rescue. That is the whole point of why Jesus came here. Because we cannot rescue ourselves, we cannot make ourselves good, we cannot save ourselves, we are doomed without someone to rescue us. That's why the most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever will believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. In his love, in his compassion, he did what we could not do by sending his son to live a life that we could not live, who died a death that we deserved so that we can have the life that he deserves. He did that. So what I owe is not what I got. He doesn't treat me as I deserve. He's so loving that he gives me what I don't deserve. But there is a day when he's going to come. He will return. He will do what he says he will do. There are people who do not believe that there's a final judgment. There are people who do not believe that there is a heaven and there is a hell. There are people who do not believe that God could allow people to be tormented forever and all of eternity because they rejected him. It's just not what the Bible says. Jesus Himself. Chapter 22 of Matthew. 
Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call to those who were invited to the wedding feast and they would not come. And he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I've prepared my dinner and my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention to him and they went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized the servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed the murderers and burned the city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads, invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now listen to this. But when the king came to look at his guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. That's Jesus speaking of what it's going to be like in the coming kingdom. Chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as shepherds separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those who on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did you see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these brothers, you did to me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison you did not visit me. And they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you thirsty and a stranger and naked and sick in prison and did not minister to you? And you'll answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Those are serious statements. They are true statements. God will bring the righteous into eternal life and he will ultimately deal with sin and brokenness. There are two places for humanity, one with Jesus forever in life and one away from God 
where there is no goodness, only torment. The deciding factor is whether or not I'm going to rest in the finished work of Jesus and allow his life to live out through me. Or am I going to reject him? Not believe in his word. Not trust the reality of who he is. That's a choice for us. Right? And that fits in all sorts of contexts. Like we could, we could go off into our identity and say, um, I'm a believer. I don't feel very righteous. I don't feel like I'm very good. But God says that I am righteous. I am loved. I am redeemed. I am a new creation. And I can make a choice to believe him, what he's going to do in the future and in the present, or deny him and live as though it's not true. I can also just say, you know what? I don't believe God exists. I don't believe he's real. I don't believe this Bible is true. I don't care about any of that. It's not going to change the reality of its truthfulness. It is true. Our call is to accept it, to respond to it, to follow it as true. So the question I want to leave with you is, do I actually believe it? If, if this is absolutely true and it tells me of who God is, it tells me what he's doing, it tells me what's going on in this world, it's able to renew my mind, help me to see would I wake up in the morning and just leave it on the floor, go about my life, not interacting with it? Or do I read it? Do I get into it? Do I treasure it like it's supposed to be treasured? <coughs> Many of you do. Many of us do and then we forget about it. question is what we're going to do today. He is good. He is kind. He loves us. He's provided for us. He's patient with us. He's not expecting perfection. He's going to rescue us. He is going to make things right. He is going to fix the wrong. He is coming again. Let's let our lives reflect the reality of that statement. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. I thank you that you love us, Lord. That you did not leave us as orphans. You came. You died. You rose again. You offered salvation like you did through Jonah to Nineveh. But there's a time where you're going to come and execute justice. Lord, help us to see it. Help us to work. Lord, utilize us to rescue many out of the fire. We trust you. We praise you in your name. Amen.